You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Is there anything more American than a road trip? This tradition seems to be so much of a part of American life and culture that it's hard to imagine a time when they didn't exist. It might seem like a straightforward question. When was the automobile invented? But like so many of our stories, it's a little more complicated than that. Some could point back as far as the 15th century, when Leonardo da Vinci was creating schematics for fantastical transportation machines. Most would credit Carl Friedrich Benz, of Mercedes-Benz, with the invention of the gas-powered automobile. Patented in 1885, this three-wheeled unit changed the world, for better or worse, depending on your view. Soon, further patents followed, and by the early 1900s, Americans could see automobiles in their towns and cities, albeit somewhat rarely. They mostly belonged to the rich. But luckily, we do have an exact date for the first American road trip. In 1903, no one was sure what an automobile could do, and in a time when most folks were still getting around with horse-drawn wagons and buggies, the idea that there was nothing pulling their new vehicle must have been hard to wrap your head around. It started with a bet. Dr. Horatio Nelson Jackson of Vermont was on vacation with his wife Bertha in San Francisco. One night they were having drinks, and the conversation turned to the automobile. Jackson was an automobile enthusiast and was quick to defend his beloved machine. He accepted a bet for $50 that he could drive a car across the United States, from San Francisco to New York City, in less than 90 days. Jackson could choose whatever car he wanted to get the job done, but of course there were a few hiccups along the way. You see, the roads that Jackson would travel along the way were barely roads at all. They were terrible. They were full of potholes and ruts from decades of wagon wheels. He also didn't own any useful maps and didn't have a car. They'd come to San Francisco via a series of trains. Oh, and Jackson couldn't drive. Now, wisely, Jackson asked for help and brought Sewell K. Crocker into his scheme. Crocker was a driver and a mechanic, and the two purchased a 1903 Winton, a two-cylinder and 20-horsepower touring car that they named the Vermont. The pair loaded up the car with everything they might need, sleeping bags, blankets, rubber suits and coats, an axe, a shovel, and other tools, a Kodak camera and a telescope, a rifle, a shotgun, parts for the car, and as much gasoline as they could carry. It only took 15 miles for them to blow a tire, forcing them to use the only spare that they brought. When other tires blew out, they had to curl rope around the wheels so they could keep going. Since there weren't widespread mechanic shops yet, they often had to walk a long way to find gas or replace busted parts. They were further delayed when they asked a woman north of Sacramento for directions, and she sent them 108 miles out of their way 
so that her family could see an automobile for the first time. In Idaho, they picked up an essential traveling companion, a bulldog named Bud, who got fitted with his own little pair of goggles to keep the dust out of his eyes. This was around the time that the press caught wind of their journey, and the trio became celebrities. Soon, large crowds were waiting for them at nearly every stop. As Jackson Crocker and Bud began making their way through the eastern half of the country, they were having an easier time. More of the roads were paved, especially in major cities. Where they had previously managed 71 miles a day, once they reached the paved streets, they covered some 250 miles. Admittedly, they did still have mishaps. They often got lost and had to replace parts, equipment, and gas. For this, they contacted the Winton Company, which was eager to provide. They wanted to show that their machines could do all of this, and soon other car manufacturers had the same idea. Packard and Oldsmobile sent out their own drivers from the West Coast, so now not only was Jackson trying to beat the clock, but he had two other drivers to worry about. Luckily, Jackson had a head start, and their increased speed meant that they plowed through Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. They made a celebratory stop in Chicago before pressing on, finally reaching New York State. Their final moment of calamity was just outside of Buffalo, where they had their first and only accident. Luckily, the car was quickly repaired, and Jackson, Crocker, and Bud rolled into New York City on July 26th of 1903, 63 days after making the bet. The trio never collected the $50, and really, it wouldn't have covered the costs. Jackson spent about $8,000 of his own money to make the journey, about $260,000 today. Crocker stayed in New York City after the journey, while Bud and Jackson made their way back to Vermont. Jackson later donated his car to the Smithsonian, where it's on permanent display. Oh, and Jackson apparently had one final automobile-related mishap later in life. It was a speeding ticket, earned while cruising through Burlington, Vermont. The legal limit that he violated? Six miles per hour. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first like worthington and liz claiborne for her each in women's petite and plus sizes and stafford and mutual weave for him style and comfort for all even big and tall plus even more for the whole family like levi's and exertion here spring comes in all shapes sizes and colors jc penny make everybody count
Growing up, most of us learn the phrase, all that glitters isn't gold, meaning that what we see on the surface doesn't reflect what's underneath. This was never truer than during America's Gilded Age. Mark Twain certainly captured the spirit of the times when he called it gold and glittering and corrupt, and no one lived out those principles better than the Vanderbilt family. The Vanderbilts were a real-life rags-to-riches story, but no matter how wealthy they were, the old-money New York families wouldn't accept them. There were certain rules the wealthy had to abide by to be considered a part of society. These involved lineages, wealth, and a truly spectacular degree of snobbishness. These rules were created by Caroline Astor and her henchman, Ward McAllister. She ruled over New York society with an iron fist, deciding who was in and who was out. Apparently, there were only 400 suitable families in New York City, and the Vanderbilts weren't among them. At least, not yet. By the mid-1800s, a new member of the family emerged that would take on Caroline Astor and the 400 with the same single-minded focus and discipline that she dedicated to every other aspect of her life. Born Alva Erskine Smith, she was intelligent with refined tastes, but no money. Her formerly prosperous family had lost their money in the years following the Civil War, and she needed to marry well. She found her perfect target in William Kissam Vanderbilt, a party boy. And Alva was a force of nature, and she planned to use her cunning, her self-assuredness, and the Vanderbilt fortune to break into Mrs. Astor's society. And the best way to do that was to throw a ball. Alva had recently completed her first manor at 665th Avenue, called the Petit Chateau, and planned to fill it in the most spectacular way possible. She struck up a friendship with Ward McAllister and used his connections to drum up interest in her party among the old crowd. It was the spring of 1883, and Lent was coming to an end. Traditionally, the start of Lent signaled the end of the New York social season, but Alva planned to give her fancy dress ball after Easter, which would set her apart from all other society hostesses. She dropped rumors to the press and to her friends, and soon the city was abuzz with gossip and whispers about the Vanderbilt Ball. By the time Alva sent out her invitations, wealthy men and women were frothing at the mouth to get into the Petit Chateau. Young ladies spent the weeks leading up to the party practicing their quadrilles, fancy themed dances performed by four couples in formation looking to show off their looks and their dowries. No one was practicing more than Mrs. Astor's daughter, Carrie. As the daughter of the Queen of Society, Carrie fully expected to be invited and, in fact, to be a lead dancer in these quadrilles. Instead, what she got was a notification that Alva was very sorry, but Carrie couldn't come because Mrs. Caroline Astor had never received Mrs. Alva Vanderbilt. By the laws of Mrs. Astor's own society, Alva was correct. Unless Mrs. Astor would acknowledge Ava Vanderbilt, Carrie couldn't attend the party of the century. Mrs. Astor evidently decided that she loved her daughter more than her rules. A calling card was duly dispatched, and Carrie Astor was allowed to take part in the spectacle. And it really was a spectacle. Newspaper reporters and gawkers packed the sidewalks as they watched a long line of carriages deliver the lushly dressed members of Mr. McAllister's 400 in the elaborate costumes, jewels, and powdered wigs of the time. Mrs. Astor herself attended as a Venetian princess, wearing every single diamond that she owned. Other costumes were a little more out there. Elizabeth Vanderbilt Webb dressed as a hornet in brown velvet and yellow satin with diamond antennae. Mrs. Kate Fearing Strong came as a cat complete with a dress made of white cat tails and a hat made of taxidermied white cat. 
Around her neck was a black velvet choker with a bell and the word puss, spelled out in glittering diamonds. Apparently, that was her nickname. And Alice Vanderbilt, Alva's rival in the family, came dressed as an electric light. Her gown, made of red, gold, and white satin and brocade, was trimmed with diamonds, and the gilded torch she carried was powered by a battery. She glittered in the light, but no one held a candle to Alva. Alva was also dressed as a Venetian princess, but she outshone Mrs. Astor in every way possible. Her yellow and white ball gown was topped with jewels, but the crowning glory wasn't her tiara. It was a rope of pearls that belonged to Catherine the Great. The only attendees not dressed outlandishly were Alva's father-in-law, Billy, and his good friend, some guy named Ulysses S. Grant, who were both dressed in plain old white tie. The house was a riot of flowers and lights, and the photographs truly do not do it justice. Alva converted the upstairs gymnasium into a forest filled with palm trees and orchids. She spared no expense on flowers, food, wine, and costumes for the quadrilles. All told, the ball cost an estimated $250,000 back then, almost $6 million today, of which $65,000 was spent on champagne and $11,000 on flowers. Everyone danced until dawn, when the guests stumbled out of the house, still in their costumes and powdered wigs. A little worse for wear, and for a moment it seemed like New York had gone back in time. Really, in one night, Alva had dragged the high society, kicking and screaming, into her future. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.